everybody. Welcome to Chapter Surfing. I am your host, Lenny Burnham, and this month we're talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the BBC miniseries from the 80s, uh, which I kind of messed up by including because it's technically based on the radio play, uh, but it covers the same story as the books The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and The Restaurant at the End of the Universe by Douglas Adams. And my guest is podcast producer Andrew Marcello. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm hanging in there. Um, so we're doing uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Tell me your background uh, with these books. Did you read them as a kid? No, I. I feel like it's kind of like a, similar to Monty Python, where I like heard jokes and references to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I didn't read it until after I graduated college. It was actually the first or second book I read right after graduating college. And did you read all of them? Yes, I have um, my very handy uh, (laughs) five-book trilogy here. And so, yeah, I read the whole... Because I started and they're they're very easy reads, at least for me. And they're not super long individual books. So Red is one collection. I just kind of breezed through them. I worked as a substitute teacher at the time, so it was a very easy book to read, like, in the teacher's lounge or whatever. Nice. Yeah, uh, I read, like, bits and pieces of them as a kid. Uh, We had that same, the, like, big collection of all the books. And I think because we had that big collection, I always thought of it as, like really daunting you know and was like Mm. oh obviously Mm. like no one will ever could ever like finish it so I would just read bits and pieces I think looking back if I had realized how short the actual books are I probably would have like breezed through them in a couple weeks (laughs) yeah looking back at this um I did not read all five books again I I know there are six but one of them wasn't written by Douglas Adams but I've I looked at the cutoff point for the first book and I was like, I could read this in like three days. Yeah, I read the first one for the first time as an adult uh, early this year after you, or no, uh, last year. Mm. I had already read it when you picked uh, when you picked this for this episode. Um, and then after I watched the miniseries this week and saw where it ended, I decided to read more. <laughs> so I read the, the restaurant at the end of the universe, which takes you right to, to the end of the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Do you do you like the books? Do you see yourself reading onward in the series? Yeah, I could definitely see myself continuing um, for sure. Are nice. you like a a big uh, a big Hitchhiker's Guide guy, uh, or is this just like your second your second time uh, reading it? Yeah, it's it's my second time reading the book. I, it made an impact on me in that there are certain atomsisms that just like creep into my head every now yeah. and then but it's not something I've made like part of my identity like I just when I said before about having like passing knowledge of of jokes and stuff from the series being on the internet like 15 years ago mm-hmm. people were making references to it pretty frequently like 42 yeah. was something I knew about because <laughs> people thought that was the funniest shit that ever fucking happened um babblefish used to be uh, a translating tool mm-hmm. I think that's something that kind of hurt me when I re- read it again as an adult that just like it some of it is so cringe and I know it like wasn't when Douglas Adams wrote it but like uh, uh or like was relatively less cringe when he first wrote it but um 
now some of this humor, I would just like read certain jokes and immediately just have the, this vivid feeling like I was looking at like magnets at Hot Topic or like <laughs> a GeoCities homepage. Yeah, I th- that's really the perfect frame of reference. Like it very is that era of the internet. Like everyone knew. I'm sure when, I don't even remember what they were called. The pre-message boards when people would discuss things like alt dot or whatever before I was around on the internet I'm sure Hitchhiker's Guide references were even more uh more frequent which is funny because to me because I remember reading about Hitchhiker's Guide right after I read it and a lot of people seem to have the take that early on in the series Douglas Adams was taking a sort of like anti-technology slant or at least like a very heavy satire on how the world was becoming more technological I never really had that takeaway from it, but I think if that was the case, it's sort of ironic that it became this big staple of like online culture. And like I mentioned Monty Python before and you saying that like the first time I ever watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I was in high school and I was like, I know all these like it made it completely went all over my head because out (laughs) of context, I knew all of the big jokes from the movie and it just like didn't make any impact on me. And then it took going back a second time and consciously like not thinking about all the things I knew from it where I was like, okay, this like really works on its own. And when it came out and you had no passing familiarity with it, it probably was the funniest shit you'd ever seen. Yeah, I totally agree. The, uh, when I, when I read the book, uh, I had such a feeling of like, there's so much of like what, I now consider cringe like 2004 humor in this um and it I feel like it was actually yeah. like watching the miniseries that got me to be like this is kind of funny and then go back to it yeah and something so you mentioned the radio series in the intro mm-hmm. and when I saw the radio series in the credits I feel like I had a passing knowledge that of course it's based on a radio series but I actually went on and sought out the radio series and listened to the first six episodes, which comprise um, the the first book and sort of beyond as well as the BBC series. And so I have more of an appreciation of sort of how the they incorporated the comedy into each medium because the timing and everything. I mean, it's I don't know how you talk about timing when it comes to a book, but between the radio and the TV series, the timing and the way things are presented, they didn't just straight adapt something like the TV series is like, okay, this, this is visual now. And it's a specific set time and it's physical actors rather than voices, disembodied voices or something you're imagining in your brain, reading words on a page. And I thought the way that they translated things from the jokes they did preserve from the radio series and the book worked really really well for the tv format yeah i agree i liked this series more than i expected to going in um i sort of remembered it from childhood uh i saw it when i was young enough that uh I don't I didn't really remember any specific scenes but I remembered it enough that uh when I read the book I immediately pictured like uh Trillian in that like pink 80s outfit and like <laughs> Arthur Dent in his robes um and I was sort of skeptical going in um uh because I generally and I still feel this way I don't really like the sort of like miniseries style of adaptation where they're just like exactly doing the book 
Mm-hmm. Um, I usually like uh, TV shows that make it their own thing. Um, it's kind of funny that you previously were on uh, the Leftovers episode because mm-hmm. I feel like these are almost two extremes of like the Leftovers is one of the shows that most makes something completely their own. And then this one is much more um, uh, a TV show that is just doing the book. But um, I ended up really enjoying their take on it in part because uh, it's just like a really delightful aesthetic. Uh, I I love the way it looks. And like my roommate walking by was like, I wish everything looked like this. Why don't Marvel <laughs> movies look like this? Oh, my God. And some people say Marvel movies look too much like TV shows. But yeah, I get I get what you're saying. And actually, it's funny you talking about it not being its own thing. I was talking about how the radio series, the first book, well, the first six episodes of the radio series, the first book and the TV series all do generally follow the same plotting. They use a lot of the same, literally the same dialogue, the same jokes. When I first, I had read the book first, I had never uh, sought out or seen any other Hitchhiker's Media. I never saw the... You, you were talking about 2004 humor. It must have been a prime era because they made that movie back then too, which I never saw. I heard it was like, fine. Um, and when you first messaged me, I saw Hitchhiker's on there. I didn't even know there was a TV series. So I was like, oh, like the movie? But um, yeah, it over time, apparently the the radio series and the books become more divergent and then actually there was meant to be i don't know if you know this there was meant to be a, at least a second series on tv and it got canceled for various reasons but it was the tv the second series on tv was going to be very different it was going to be based on a rejected doctor who plot that douglas adams had written which he apparently did a lot he would just like write stuff for doctor who which he it's I read his introduction to the book and it's funny how he talks about Doctor Who because he's like, well, I had to eat. Right. Yeah. When I started, um, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say when I started Restaurant at the End of the Universe after watching the miniseries for the first two pages, I was like, oh, this is just the narration from this show. <laughs> but yeah, it's and and having seen 80s, late 70s and 80s Doctor Who stuff. There were sometimes, like when they land on the planet, I wasn't even anticipating it. But as soon as they land on the planet, I'm like, of course, it's a fucking British quarry. Yes. What else would be an alien planet? Yeah, me neither. But a quarry. <laughs> it did look like how it was described in the book, which actually, going back and reading the book, <laughs> that impressed me. Because I was like, I wonder if he was writing with <laughs> Doctor Who British quarry planet in mind for this one. Yeah. Um and so you saw the series when you the, you saw the TV series when you were younger having only read the book. My frame of reference the one thing that really stuck out for me was when I imagined Marvin oh, in wow. my head the first time I read the book, my mind went to like Mystery Science Theater 3000, that kind of like robot, like something more more sleek, more rounded, more geometrical. <laughs> um Marvin was just this big, clunky, I mean, like, what your brain would imagine when hearing the word robot. And he didn't sound like how I imagined either. Have you listened to the radio series? So the interesting thing to me was that a lot of the actors from the TV series were from the radio series. (laughs) And so it was interesting to, like, hear 
a lot of the same voices doing sometimes like different takes on the dialogue and things the because the one thing i remember from douglas adams intro to the series is how he talks about how he <laughs> it was both economical and for the purpose of preserving the humor that he just used the same dialogue between mediums but he just like would change the motivation of why characters were saying certain things but keep the dialogue um did the radio play have the Zaphod subplot where he's like looking for the ruler of the universe? That was the big difference I noticed uh, between Restaurant at the End of the Universe and the miniseries. Yeah. So the TV series generally follows the radio series, but because there's a lot of a lot more visual stuff in the TV series, which is my favorite part, the book entries use that. Um, that animation that looks like computer animation, but isn't. And it's all that line art. Uh, it's really great. But um, because of that, there's like stuff that's in the book that's not in the series, but then there's stuff that is not in the radio series that's then expanded in the book. And then the stuff that the book has expanded is then put in the TV series. Yeah. It's interesting to see what was taken and what was left. And in the radio series, the book stuff is used sort of as an interstitial. So, like, the characters will be in one place, and then it's like, let's go over here. And then you get a guide entry, and then they're like, well, guys, we're over here now. And, yeah, the TV mm. series was really light on Zaphod and Trillian. And the book, uh, the radio series did not have that either. So it sort of followed the radio series in that way. The book really expands on both Zaphod and Trillian, but more Zaphod. Like, the whole <laughs> thing with him cauterizing his own brain and that stuff is completely absent in the radio series, at least as far as I listened. Maybe it's added later and he brought it back in the book. <laughs> and this is actually something I I really did want to talk about. I don't... I'm, uh, I'm not an author. I don't know a lot of authors. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as I know with creative writing, a lot of people will you know, plot out in advance or write things and then they'll be like, well, that's awfully clever. And then they'll go back and add stuff so that what they added later makes more sense because it was adapted from a radio series in six parts. The the events in the book and the TV series were written in the order that they're told. So it wasn't like anything, <laughs> anything that was, uh, could be perceived as foreshadowing was, inserted later uh, either by accident or by intent and anything that is contradictory you are just kind of meant to accept <laughs> which i think becomes more of a problem the more you get into the series and he as a narrative voice really does not care one way or another whether something he wrote in one book contradicts things that happened in another book which i think given the the tone of this series works just fine you uh you eventually read uh all the books right Yes, except the last one, which wasn't written by Douglas Adams. Okay. But I've read all the ones that he wrote. Um, is there like a payoff to the to the Zaphod plot, or does it like fizzle out? I honestly do not remember. I want to say the third book, which was meant, I think, to be the last one, because people will cheekily refer to the five or six book series as a trilogy. Right. Um. I, from what I remember, that largely wraps stuff up like at the end of restaurant at the end of the universe you have 
what was originally the end of the radio series and the TV series, you have them finding the ultimate question. And then I think, oh, I'm trying to remember what they're all called. So long and thanks for all the fish, I think is the third one. Whatever. The third one, mm-hmm. it wraps up um, whatever's left. And then the fourth one is like a very self-contradictory, irreverent romance. Is it between Trillian and Arthur? No, it's oh. between Arthur and, do you remember the gag where it talks about the woman on Earth who finally figured out what what was all wrong with humanity and she couldn't wait to tell everyone, but before she got to a phone, the Earth was demolished? Oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. So the fourth book, The Earth is Back, I don't remember why, mm-hmm. and she's like the only one who can remember and so Arthur meets her and Arthur can remember too. And so they like fall in love because they're like, we're different than the rest of humanity. And he like learns to fly and they have like sex in the sky while listening <laughs> to the dire straits. It's great. Wow. It's really great. And then after I read the whole series, I went and looked online. And at the time, I don't know how people feel about it now, but at the time people were like, wow, this kind of sucks. <laughs> but it's my favorite book in the series. And it's the wow. one that, I mean, the first one is probably the one you'd recommend to people if they want to know what it's all about. Mm-hmm. But it it's a really good just like standalone book, like from start to finish. Now I might just like go reread, reread that one. It's so good. <laughs> and then the fifth one is just, uh, it's called Mostly Harmless. And that's kind of how I feel about the book. And maybe it's how <laughs> Douglas Adams felt about the book. It was just like, I want to write another one. Maybe my accountant wants me to write another one. So uh, I had already sort of had the miniseries in my mind when I read it. Um, for you, uh, how much did uh, did the characters match up with what you were picturing, the human characters? I'm going to answer that question, but mm-hmm. before I do, I realized I didn't fully answer your previous question about Zaphod, which <laughs> in which I meant to mention that there is a short story. It's a prequel, but it kind of... It's meant to tell you a lot more about what Zaphod's whole deal is. It's before he does uh, self-brain surgery. So it's like a, it's called like Young Zaphod Gets It Together or something like that. But it's a really fun, quick read. Um, You can probably find it online if it's not in your book collection or whatever. But it's, it's really fun. And it's a, it's a standalone Zaphod story before he steals the heart of gold and everything. So if they don't conclude on his plot in the books... I think that is meant weirdly again because it's a prequel to provide some <laughs> resolution on his character. Okay. And if you like Zaphod, it's a good it's a good story about Zaphod. Yeah, I did kind of feel like he was the best character in the book and sort of uh I felt like Zaphod had the closest thing to like a plot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um whereas uh like the Arthur stuff is like I like but is very sort of like he arrives somewhere, weird stuff happens. He's like, oh, that's weird. And then it's like on to the next like weird thing. Yeah, stuff happens to Arthur, really. Yeah. And then Ford is introduced as like this guy who's meant to show, like explain to Arthur everything that's going on. But once Zaphod and to a lesser extent Trillian are introduced, Ford doesn't have really as much to do. Yeah, until... I feel like when yeah. I first read it, I kind of forgot that there's, three guys and not two because they yeah. fought and Ford like really blended together. Yeah. And until, until they get Zaphod and Trillian back out of the picture, 
Ford, yeah, doesn't really have a lot to do. Um, I will say I didn't picture Ford to transition to the question you just <laughs> asked. I didn't picture Ford as uh knockoff Doctor Who, that's for <laughs> sure. It really felt like they went into a rejected the BBC went into a rejected wardrobe and were just like, Well, you know, he's an alien, he's meant to be an alien. Well, it's a guy that looks like an alien. Um I felt like a in the TV show, Ford looks like a little bit of a, like a dork. Um, and then Arthur, uh, who's notably six feet tall, uh, yes. is like kind of Chad in the TV series. And I was like, mm. uh, I feel like uh, he, I don't know, uh, seemed like a lot more confident and aggressive than I was imagining him in the book. Yeah, in the in the book, I thought he seemed like kind of a like cool frat guy who happens to be an alien, and then on the show, he's like kind of a dweeb. Um, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, with Arthur, I had even though they do mention it in the book a few times, it's hard to continue to imagine a man walking around in his bathrobe all the time. <laughs> so that was something I really enjoyed. On that point, the towel is completely absent from the radio series. And that's such a thing people associate with the series that I was surprised. That was the most surprising thing I was, I, that was the thing I was most surprised to (laughs) not hear when I listened to the radio series. There's absolutely no mention of bringing your towel along with you, which is a whole bunch of nonsense anyway. Yeah. I all, I always thought that was kind of a three out of 10 bit. It's all for the payoff of like, there's a hoopy fruit who knows where his towel is. (laughs) So I guess it all depends on how much you like nonsense language. Yeah. And in Restaurant at the End of the Universe, there's like a guy who's fully just like eating a meal based like from his towel. And I was just like, this has gone too far. I don't understand what you're even doing with this bit. Um, But yeah, it's it's I liked the image of six foot tall, which is not mentioned in the book. Because you tweeted about it, and then I read the book, and I was like, his height is suspiciously absent, but there is the added detail of him working in local radio, which I was delighted by. Nice. There's a lot in the book where you can tell Douglas Adams was a little audiophile in the late Mm -hmm. 70s, which is very fun. Like, he mentions, like, something so specific. He mentions, like, a six-track tape, and I was like, I I don't even know what six-track is. (laughs) I I only know eight and beyond. So, yeah, that's... It's it's fun to see what is taken and what is left, but Arthur, especially with his voice remaining in the radio series, was kind of a constant for me between all the mediums of just this, like, hapless guy. I did, I kind of found him, you know, handsome. I find the man himself to be handsome, but the character to be, you know, he's, he's a hapless sort of nitwitty loser in all, <laughs> in all forms. Yeah, in the... Even though the dialogue is the same in the book, I saw a lot of his like snarky comments as being like kind of pathetic and like, yo, just, I just want tea. Um, but then in, I don't know, in the series, there was something about that guy where I was just like, oh, you're like snarkily only caring about your tea in like a cool Chad way. <laughs> I think he has a righteous indignation about him that yeah. is served better when you can like see him. Yeah. I also think. Uh, Ford and Arthur have a dynamic I really love that is kind of like under discussed in the actual material, but I really like it when I actually like think about it uh, because Arthur is like without question the only person on Earth Ford actually cares about saving 
and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Arthur's only response to that is like annoyance like he's never like hey it's cool that you cared about me enough that I'm the only person on earth you want to save he's just like yeah this is this is stuff is annoying you're ruining my day uh and I really like that dynamic I love the line where Arthur is like I can't die I have a headache when I get to heaven I'll be cross yes and I think that's really like Arthur's full, whole character because I get the sense that Arthur always has a headache and will always be cross yeah It's like the only emotion he ever has from the smallest situation to the biggest situation is just like mild annoyance. Which he doesn't even, I mean, that's, and that's established very early because he lived in London and then couldn't stand the noise. So he moved to the middle of nowhere in a crappy house he doesn't even like (laughs) with a dog we never see who's more of like a burden to him. He's like, oh, I have to feed the dog or walk the dog. Or whatever he has to do to his dog we never see or he never cares about. He's never even like, oh, no, my dog. Someone mentions, like, the mice the mice being upset about the earth being destroyed. And that's the only time he ever mentions a dog outside of, like, oh, I had to take care of my dog. He's like, well, I'm sure the cats and dogs and duck-billed platypuses will be upset, too. But he's never like, oh, no, my dog. Aww. Yeah, that's fun. Um, I felt like the... The ending of the miniseries had a real sort of like rom-com vibe because it drops Trillian and Zaphod and is like, yeah, whatever, who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, it ends on Arthur and Ford alone together on Earth. Um, like they're not fully alone, but um, it like ends on them like walking through the woods and uh, what a wonderful world plays. Yeah. And it feels very romantic. And then I was sad when I uh, when I read Restaurant at the End of the Universe because that ends almost the same except there's randomly just like two women who pair off mm. with them <laughs> yeah d- i mentioned that the fourth book is a romance and it's mm. kind of sad to say that that's sh- the fen who's in the fourth book is probably my favorite uh female character in this series Douglas Adams doesn't really have the best like many sci-fi writers doesn't have the best hang on writing women doesn't really know what to do with them besides having them sort of be there as accessories. I was surprised when I listened to the radio series, there are a lot more female characters just like filling, filling space existing. Mm -hmm. Like the, um, the programmers of the supercomputer that divines the ultimate answer. One of them is a woman in the radio series. And for some reason just got changed to a man in the book and TV series. Mm -hmm. And there's stuff like that throughout and it's like, it doesn't even make a difference. It could still right. be a woman. It's not like, <laughs> but yeah, it, it compared to the radio series, the book and the TV series are pretty much all men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, <laughs> well, how do we, how do we make this ending better? Give them girls to end up with. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. And on that note, I feel like, uh, trillions writing is a little bit all over the place um mm-hmm. when uh they they introduce sort of this backstory that she and arthur knew each other at a party before zaphod cock blocked him which i think is really funny yeah um but like arthur has this line where he's like oh she was the perfect woman she was like so smart um which i thought was really cool but they don't really uh ever really have 
much payoff or elaboration on that sort of like mutual respect between them, um, which I think I thought was disappointing because I feel like um, like sad sack who respects me as a sad uh, uh, sad sack who respects me as a smart person versus like cool dumb guy who I can follow on on adventures is like a good um, dilemma to have a woman in if you're going to do a love triangle. Um, but it felt a little underexplored. Yeah. And I don't know to what extent Trillian was even, I mean, she's literally like the only girl, but I don't know to what extent she was meant to be a romantic interest. Cause even with Zaphod, you get the sense that she doesn't really care about him. She cares about the fact that she could escape earth with her mice, not have to be, again, in a great gag, have to be in the unemployment line because she has a double degree in, like, astrophysics and (laughs) something else. Uh, But beyond the first episode she appears in and the corresponding part of the book, she isn't really given a lot to do. Um, Her her hyper-intelligence kind of stops being relevant because you you have that gag, which is a great one, but you also have her figuring out the improbability with Zaphod mm. and even I went back and looked at the TV series that's kind of underplayed too how he picked her up at a party but she's somebody that Arthur knew from Earth it's touched upon but it's kind of trimmed down to as as thin as you can trim it before cutting it out entirely which is unfortunate but there's only so much you can do with a character who the author himself kind of throws away after a while she isn't even in the second radio series douglas adams once was like she never really got a grasp on the character but that's not her fault it's like (laughs) why don't you just say that you never really got a grasp on the character then wow um yeah because i think it's uh it would be like a really funny rom-com setup to have it be like you know i fell really hard for this girl at a party and like lucky me now we're literally the last two people mm. alive but then the same guy who cock blocked you before shows up and you're like god damn it um and uh yeah i wish there was sort of more follow through with that yeah um but she does have an incredible outfit on the show uh it's like this little one piece bathing suit number and then at some point I don't know if this was the actress's demand or something, but at some point she just suddenly has pants for the rest of the show. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, she um, very, there's a shot where she goes, it's a fun outfit, but I also remember being like, maybe this is why they put her in the outfit. There's a shot where she's like, oh no, my mice. And she's like, on her hands and knees looking for her mice. And the camera's like looking directly at her. And it's just like, a very gratuitous, obvious cleavage shot. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I was like, did they, re- I, like I said, did they really put her in that outfit like just to get this one shot of her on her hands and knees? Um, but it is fun. It's very spangly. Um, it's fun when they, I think she's still in that outfit when they go to the restaurant. And I yeah, think that she, put it like. For the rest mm-hmm. of the show, she's like in the same outfit, but she just has like other stuff over it. Like uh, there's like a little coat and like pants that she puts on. I can see that being something the performer asked for. Yeah. Um, I looked up uh, the movie Trillion because I was like, there's no way her outfit is as cool. But it's also very cool. I got to say, Zoe Deschanel in like 
uh, argyle uh, socks and a big button-up shirt and I think like little blue shorts. Um, I love that the like consistent thread for Trillian is that she should look like she's in an American apparel head. Yeah, I'm looking. That one's really fun. You get the sense from that one. Was oh, that Marvin? Uh, <laughs> you get the sense from that one that she really was just wearing whatever on earth kind of like arthur she was wearing whatever when she got picked up and never really had anything to change into which thinking about it sort of inversely for the tv series what she wears there makes a lot of sense for something she pulled out of zaphod's closet or (laughs) zaphod pulled out for her yeah but i can't imagine like the way i imagine her and zaphod's dynamic is kind of like hey baby let's go back to my pod and get it on and her just like constantly coming up with a list of excuses as to why (laughs) she can't but still maintain it like i don't like i said i don't necessarily perceive her as being so attracted to zaphod as much as being attracted to the idea of here's a man from outer space that i can hitch a ride with and sort of ride the not ride the coattails of but you know right yeah it's called the hitchhiker's guide and they're all hitchhikers (laughs) Yeah, the well in the book I imagined Zephod a lot more as like uh like a really hot himbo. Mm-hmm. Like even if he's not like physically attractive, just like super cool. Like I kind of imagine like um John Delancey as Q from Star Trek. Um just like really cool, confident, charismatic guy um who I could imagine someone like Trillian being like into but also being like god this guy's so dumb in like a kind of fun way um and then i felt like in the show uh not really because of the casting or anything but just because he's so underdeveloped i thought he was like a lot more of a like a flop he was just like that's some guy yeah i was gonna say before when we were talking about zaphod i definitely feel like he is the character who benefited the most from the written format Mm -hmm. because you have those adibi the first time you're introduced to him and Trillian in the radio series and the TV series is when they pick up Arthur and Ford. Like the action kind of follows Arthur and Ford, mostly Arthur, and doesn't go anywhere else except for the one part where they're in Magrathia and you have the split narrative between Arthur and Marvin. Uh, I would love to talk about Marvin and the other three. But in the book, you meet Zaphod when he's stealing the heart of gold. The fact that he's the president of the universe or the galactic, whatever, is established. You get a lot of his, like, here's a guy who knows what he's doing, but also kind of has no fucking idea what he's doing, which is is perfect. Like, I do. I really love his character. And you, there's that passage where Trillian is talking about, or Trillian's thinking about, something stupid Zaphod is doing. And it's like, Trillian wasn't sure if this was, if this particular stupidity was an instance of Zaphod pretending to be stupid, Zaphod genuinely being stupid, or Zaphod being so smart that it comes all the way back around to being stupid. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of really great Zaphod stuff that got cut out, um, like the part where... um, he goes into the thing that gives you complete perspective on everything. And it's like, yeah, confirmed that he is the most important person in the universe. And then he got on with his day. Uh, 
in the movie, it's uh, Sam Rockwell, which I think is like perfect. I think someone like that who's really cool could uh, could pull it off more. In in the sh- sorry, I was just gonna say uh, in the show, the best thing about Zaphod is how terrible the effect is of his second head. I was literally <laughs> just about to mention that his head, which is like I guess asleep most of the time, has an eye patch for no reason. Yeah, his head. So. Yeah, the effects, I mean, the hand, the arm is, like, mostly at rest most of the time. And when it's, there's, like, one bit, I'm sure it was very impressive for the BBC special effects budget (laughs) in the early 1980s. But he's, in something that is divergent from, I think, both the radio series and the book, Trillian's out of the room and he's sort of just, like, by himself being like, okay, what is the best chair for me to sit in to seem like they're meeting me unexpectedly? which I think is so perfect for his characterization in the TV series because what you lose in his internal monologue and that characterization, you gain in sort of, here's a guy who really wants to seem cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it, he he like sticks his one arm out, his other arm out, and then his third arm out, and his third arm waves, which like the puppeteering for that, again, how many people did they have to have under the set just to make every single finger on his extra arm wave. And then Ford just goes, Oh, Hey, Zephod, love the new arm, (laughs) which that great gag. But yeah, his head, like they didn't, they didn't actually need the head. I think Mm -hmm. if they had done more effects testing with the head, they could have just written around him not having, it never talks. It never does much of anything. At one point, he wears sunglasses and doesn't put the sunglasses on the second head. It's just something that's kind of there because he has a second head in the book. There's a lot more fun interactivity with the head in the book. Because I think the head... I don't even know if he has a second head in the radio series. It's so negligible. But the, um, the thing with his brain being sliced down the middle, I think the fact that his two heads can only think certain things to each other is a lot of fun and really interesting. Uh, one more thing on Zaphod real quick, since we were talking about casting. I, When he first showed up in the TV series, I was like, if they made this today, this should be Matt Berry. Oh, yeah, I definitely see that. There's yeah. a recurring series on Vulture about characters that should be played by Matt Berry. And I think <laughs> he, like, he plays the perfect... Like, a character who is so smart, he's dumb... Like he can he can play that kind of character perfectly, who like has charisma but is also completely detestable. Yeah, I definitely see that. And he's really hot, so <laughs> Um, yeah, I felt like they should have for the two heads effect just had it been like two guys in a big suit and that would have been better i mean i think because the second head doesn't really do anything it would be nice to see them actually be like more dynamic yeah i think i agree having a second actor would be the best way to go about it i made a face because (laughs) thinking about the bbc special effects budget in the 1980s i cannot imagine how two men stuffed into a single suit would have actually ended up looking on screen (laughs) But he's one of the ones who was in the radio series, too. And I think he is the is the character who, even without the additional characterization of the book, he is a lot more defined, even in the TV series, compared to the radio series. He has a lot more of that, like, hey, man. 
I'm just trying to play it cool. <laughs> that like affectation, which is a lot of fun. He says, hey, a whole lot. I don't know if that was just coming into the lexicon in the UK in the 80s, but there seems to be some kind of parodic aspect to how much he goes, hey, let's all just take a chill pill, dude. Yeah, I think that's that's also a really good uh, dynamic. Like, Arthur's just so never impressed by anything um, and just wants to, like, go home and drink tea. Uh, like, it's really funny, this guy who, like, uh has two heads and is literally the president of the galaxy uh trying to seem cool uh to this really boring sad sack nerd who just like does not care at all yeah and i love how inversely everyone else around arthur is just like will you quit bellyaching about that shitty stupid planet with the monkeys (laughs) on it you're lucky we're even taking you along for the ride it's it's very hot when uh that uh, Zaphod insists on calling him Monkey Man all the time. <laughs> I was thinking about when they talk about, the mice talk about replacing his brain. <laughs> and he's like, it's fine. All you need to do is say, what? Okay. And where's the tea? And then Arthur goes, what? Oh, right. I wanted to talk about Marvin. Can we talk about Marvin? Oh, yeah, of course. Marvin, the paranoid android. Yeah. I have always fucking hated that he's clearly depressed, but they call him paranoid because it rhymes. Yeah, I, I, my first exposure to the idea of paranoid android, of course, came from the Radiohead song. But yeah, (laughs) he's not, he's not really paranoid in any way. Arthur is more paranoid than Marvin is. Yeah, I think Marvin is, has like a very uh, down to earth perception of reality. He's like, everyone considers me a menial robot. And then it's like, yeah, that is absolutely true. Marvin was apparently meant to be a one-off character. And then British audiences enjoyed him so much that they kept bringing him (laughs) back, which totally makes sense to me. (laughs) But his like, what if your toaster could talk and also it had depression? (laughs) It's a living. Literally, it's... What a great character concept. It really is, though. It's that that gag extrapolated out to <laughs> what is eventually a main character of the series. I really love that they just, like, I just finished listening to the first six episodes of the radio series, like, literally just. So I got to hear one last time Zaphod promising him a life of grand adventure if he comes back from his job parking cars and then not five minutes later, they're like, actually, it'd be really great if you would sacrifice yourself so that we <laughs> could keep living. There's an interaction that's only in the book. I mean, I don't know if it's in the radio play, but it's not in the TV series um, where they leave Marvin alone to fight this like overpowered uh, army grade robot. And um, the way Marvin defeats him is he's like, these humans left me alone with no fucking weapons to fight you. Uh, They just expect me to do that because they care about me so little. And the robot gets so mad on his behalf that it destroys the building and accidentally kills itself. And then Marvin's like, God, that guy was dumb. And um, I find that whole relationship very sexy. (laughs) It's his interaction with other robots is my favorite. Because you have him in the door where he's just like, this door, it's so fucking happy all the time. I (laughs) hate it. And then something else that's also in the book, because Douglas Adams really needed a way to end 
the book early so that it could actually get published. He, the, and I think it works a lot better than the way it's resolved in the radio and TV series when they're cornered by the very enlightened liberal cops who will still blast mm-hmm. away at them at a moment's notice, which that entire exchange I really love, especially something coming out of the late seventies. Um, where in the, in the radio and TV series, they just kind of get lucky and a computer explodes. And then somehow for no explained reason ever, they're teleported through time and space to the, re- through time, not space through the restaurant at the end of the universe. Oh, yeah. But in the book, it happens because well, the, the situation is resolved because Marvin goes and talks to the ship of the cops. And after telling the ship his views on the universe, the ship fucking kills itself. Yeah, that is a great gag. Um, that ending, uh, the right after that ending is very, is a little weird because then Zaphod's like, we're going to the restaurant at the end of the universe, which just like, I'm sure felt like a good like read the next book ending um but then when i started that book which is literally called the restaurant at the end of the universe it takes forever to actually get there and i was like reading all this stuff and i kept like checking that i was actually in fact reading the restaurant at the end of the universe i was like this has to be the wrong book because like at the end of the first one there that's the immediate promise. They're like, we're going to do this next. And then it takes so long to actually get there. I can only imagine the reason that is. And yeah, I had the same sensation where Zaphod's like, let's go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And having read them before, I had the knowledge that the restaurant at the end of the universe only appears at the end of the book titled The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Um, First of all, I get the feeling that the publisher titled that because the end of the previous book promised the restaurant at the end of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> but also, in again, to go back to the source material, the TV series, which follows the radio series, they go right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like Douglas Adams felt that the restaurant and then that leading into the whole bit with the goal graphians or whatever they're called the managerial Mm -hmm. people which is probably my favorite part of the six episode series that bit of it um worked better as an ending especially with them then finding the ultimate question Mm -hmm. because then you know you have ford and arthur and i guess two ladies too walking into the sunset together Mm -hmm. and that's a really Mm -hmm. great ending like the whole thing could just end there so it's like, where do you go from there if you're going to write a whole book? Because either the book could just be a really expanded edition of two radio and TV episodes, or it could be, you know, something that's big and bombastic and then takes you there after. Now I'm just thinking about when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? They called the book <laughs> The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Yes, that's exactly the <laughs> feeling. <laughs> Yeah, the the jokes with the, like, uh, when they meet the society that's all, like, marketing directors, um, I found, like, a little awkward. First off, I think it's weird that hairstylists are in there and are not considered people who do, like, real work. Um, but uh, those, those jokes just bummed me out because I was like, yeah, I also don't want to work in marketing. Why are you putting this... <laughs> on these poor people like we can't all just write sci-fi novels for a living as much as we wish we could (laughs) i enjoyed seeing 
Douglas. I, I think I like the more misanthropic side of Douglas Adams. Usually, sometimes it comes off as a little much, but there's there's a bit earlier that I think maybe works better in terms of he has a clear disdain for marketing and marketers. And I think his gag about the serious cybernetics corporation marketers being the first against the wall when the revolution comes, that comes off as more of a condemnation of the employer than the employees. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, yeah. I, when I got to the pit, I was like, I was just like, damn, man, we don't even make good money in marketing. <laughs> Maybe things were different in the 70s and yeah. the UK. I was like, first up against the wall with their 40K a year doing fucking marketing. But I did uh, absolutely love their leader who's just in the back. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. There was no explanation for that gag. It's not like a stereotype that marketing directors are always bathing. And that doesn't seem to be as much of a disdainful caricature. I mean, it is, but maybe it's from my knowing that Douglas Adams wasted a whole bunch of time and publisher deadlines because he was self-admittedly taking a lot of baths. Nice. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's just such a vibe that he's been in the bath for like two years and they're like, oh, we're almost there. And he's like, oh, good. I'll have just enough time to finish my bath. And the the documentary director is like, we're really going to focus on the angle of you being like a rugged individualist. And he's like, well, don't think too hard in that. I do have my rubber duck. <laughs> uh, yeah, that guy's got it all figured out. Yeah, it the ultimate reveal that humanity is descended from middle management types than <laughs> cavemen, I think is really what ties that all together for me because yeah, there's somewhere it's like, okay, this, you know, maybe you missed the mark with the hairdressers or whatever, but just <laughs> this general disdain for like quote unquote middle management. And then it being well, like, well, this is where humanity comes from. Just have needing this uh, endless need to have committees and meetings for <laughs> Like, what color is the wheel going to be? <laughs> I think that all worked out beautifully. And then is it the beginning of Restaurant at the End of the Universe where they're still in caveman times? That would be in the next one, the third one. I haven't read Oh, that. okay. Yeah. it's Stuff really jumps around, but it's <laughs> it's fun when Arthur is a caveman. I th- not a caveman, but like... He's he's in the past. He's got a beard. He's very comfortable living in the past, which is maybe where the whole Douglas Adams Lowe's technology thing comes from, because uh, Arthur seems his most content living in a cave. Yeah, I think you might be thinking of like the very end of Restaurant at the End of the Universe, because it's like they get to Earth and then there's just in the TV show, there's just like a gag that's like one year later and then they have big beards. which is Oh, yeah. That is a great gag, though. And you get to see them somewhat exploring the Earth, which I liked. The the radio series just has someone mention it offhandedly. Like, it's like, oh, where have you been? You were just, like, exploring for a year. But the one, I mean, it's, it's the advantage of TV as a medium, but I really liked how they used the medium of TV to show things that weren't extrapolated on as much in the books especially because some things they adapted from the books could not have been realized on the 80s bbc budget like even the improbability (laughs) drive there's all this fascinating stuff written that in radio you can just say whatever you want because 
they imagine it in their head. So yeah, Ford's turning into a duck and Arthur's <laughs> limbs are falling off and the sea's not moving, but the mountains are. And then you hand it to special effects people working on TV <laughs> on a budget in the 80s and they're like, well, we'll do our best. Yeah, it basically... Yeah, it turned into, like, they're standing in front of, like, a Microsoft screensaver. Yeah, but they did But they did I mean, best. I liked it. I re- I, like I said, I really like the aesthetic of this show. There's one another scene the book added that I think worked really well was you get to see Zaphod, Ford, and Trillian before Arthur reunites with them at the meeting with the mice, and they're at mm. the planet... They're in, like, the planet blueprint room or something. And Ford's like, wake up, Zavod, you're on a planet made of in, uh, made of solid gold. And then the planet, mm-hmm. like, changes to all these, like, fascinating, mind-bending things. And, yeah, it's not something you could have ever shown on TV. But those things are what I really enjoy about the book compared to the other things. And I expected more of it from the radio series, especially with the TV series really preserving douglas adams narrative voice in a way that actually surprised me the radio series is very light on descriptions the narration is pretty much exclusively reserved for passages from the book which as i mentioned earlier are used more as interstitials between scenes and then everything else is just dialogue which is i feel like the greatest strength of this series and probably why i like it so much because i like reading dialogue more than i like reading other parts of written word but it the book gives more space for things and then the tv series my favorite part was how it portrayed the book entries like you have the the gags where it's like this never happens or like this is impossible (laughs) but it shows you them happening anyway that's great yeah all right we can start wrapping up did you have any uh observations about the miniseries or the book that you really wanted to get to no i i think the the most striking thing about it to me beyond its restrictiveness was its similarity to another bbc lightly comedic science fiction series that was running at the time it's not really worth harping on like yeah they were making doctor who and so the show kind of looks like doctor who (laughs) <laughs> I wish it had had more of the visual imagination of Doctor Who and the more science fictiony portions. Like at one point in the book, the whole the ship's deck changes, and in the series, they just are like put some trees in there to show that things have changed. But I'm sure it didn't have the budget of Doctor Who. Yeah. So that was. I I would have liked to see more of it. It's a shame they didn't make more for whatever reason. Yeah. I, uh, that's sort of my big final thought is, uh, I would just really like someone to turn this into like a real TV show. I can easily imagine like a hundred episodes of just these characters on a ship exploring and you could get to, you could get to all of the stuff that's in the books, not necessarily in order. And then also imagine all sorts of fun plots, uh, in, in a similar, in a similar world. I think something that is really great about the serialized and gag heavy way that it was originally written it does lend itself to like you don't have to necessarily tell the stories in the original order 
and mm-hmm. like I said before, the the books and radio series already start to diverge on that anyway. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you could definitely make a new TV series that starts off the same way with Arthur on Earth, which I loved seeing on TV, by the way. We didn't really talk about that that much. So to harp on it just for a second, I loved how much time the first episode did spend on Earth. It really followed the book more closely and how it was expanded out and that like you spend time with the the foreman and you get that great parallel between Arthur's house was torn down for a bypass and then the earth was torn down for a bypass I love that and something that was missed in translation I mean I say missed they did it intentionally but in the radio series the Vogon chief has like a really annoying nasally not nasally but like he resembles the foreman he's like very uptight and like well if you didn't want to bypass you should have looked at the (laughs) blueprints they're on alpha centauri and because he's a big green monster he sounds like a big green monster in the tv series right but that that was a lot of fun to hear how the parallel was even stronger in the radio series but yeah if you start there and that's like episode one you could pretty much go wherever you want with a main cast of four or five. Mm. And it, please, cast Matt Berry. <laughs> I don't know who... I was trying to think of a fan casting before we did this. I can't, but Matt Berry for Zephod Beeblebrocks. <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, let's get into our ratings. Um, the, the book... Uh, when, I, when I first read it, I was kind of iffy on it. Uh, it does have... Just like so much humor that will take you back to uh, easy boards and GeoCities. But once you get past that. (laughs) Did you know there used to be a chat client called Trillion? Do you remember that? No. You could like combine your like AIM and AOL and Yahoo accounts. I said AIM twice. Oh, yeah, I do Uh, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You can chat with your Um, MSN friends and your AIM friends at the same time without having to switch programs. But it is, uh, I think, a very charming, uh, a charming, very charming book once you get past that. So I'm going to give Hitchhiker's Guide and Restaurant at the End of the Universe both three stars. Or no, I'm going to give them three and a half stars. The miniseries uh, is basically, for the most part, the same as the books with less Zephod and Trillion. uh, And I really enjoy the aesthetic. Uh, There's a lot of fun outfits and just fun visuals. uh, So I'm going to give that three stars. Nice. Uh, I really enjoyed all the books the first time I read them. I only reread the first book. I thought about reading Restaurant at the End of the Universe, but I thought it was fine to just, with the knowledge oh, of the sure. TV series and the radio series, just end the book and be like, huh, so it ends there, huh? They really did just like grab it from him and publish it because he wasn't <laughs> doing any more pages. That really is how it happened. Um, at least so he says. I'm going to go ahead and give Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy a five stars. I think it's great. I love Douglas Adams' narrative voice. I think that carries the whole thing. There are so many things I did. Like, the ships hung in the air in the way that bricks don't. (laughs) I don't think there's any other writer who writes similes like that. Douglas Adams has such a unique narrative voice that really resonates with me. Uh, also, it wasn't soured by internet culture for me in the way that something like Monty Python was. So, yes, five stars for the book. Um, also, hearty recommendation for the fourth book. I think it was so long, and thanks for all the fish. But whatever the fourth book is, uh, <laughs> everyone listening, 
check that one out. It's really great. It's really special. I mean, you too. I've I've recommended it to you. <laughs> but yeah, um, I might go reread that one. And then for the TV series, I'm going to knock it down one and give it four only because, um, I don't know, because I imagine Marvin differently. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It's it, the budget shows. It's really fun right. and imaginative, but at the same time, there's only so much you can do with an early 1980s BBC sci-fi budget when the rest of that budget is being eaten up by a much bigger and notable program. So <laughs> if they made it today and they made it faithfully, uh, I'd probably give it five stars too, especially if Matt Berry was in it. Hell, I'd give it six stars <laughs> if Matt Berry was in it. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So I'd like to end by giving a recommendation. Um, since I liked the books better, I will recommend a TV show. I'm going to recommend Gravity Falls, uh, which is a sci-fi cartoon that you can watch on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and I think it has a lot of the same, just like very witty, quick humor and is a lot of fun. You're going to love my recommendation. I was thinking about this <laughs> last night and I was like, right. what TV yeah. series can I think of that has like somewhat philosophical comedy and a lot of irreverence to it and it's still like science fiction-y because I thought about a lot of stuff but I was like I want to stay like at least in sci-fi so the tv series that I'm going to recommend which you can watch I think on Hulu and maybe also HBO Max is Rick and Morty hell yeah I that was the other one I thought about recommending yeah I think yeah and actually, I might go give Rick and Morty another chance. It never really sticks with me. So Rick and Morty fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go read the fourth Hitchhiker's Guide book and watch Rick and Morty. Nice. All right. Thank you for joining me. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't have anything. I'm working. You know what? If, if you care a lot about politics, about approaching politics from a left wing perspective you like hearing from marginalized voices uh led by a queer black woman why not check out woke af daily on patreon patreon.com slash woke af i produce that show it updates five days a week which is a fucking lot of work for a podcast <laughs> just saying and it's only five dollars a month to hear like fucking hundreds of episodes so yeah check it out you don't have to listen to every episode but it's fun to get stuff off your chest, and she's a very empathetic and relatable voice, and I produce it and make it sound good. <laughs> of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Lenny Burnham. You can search Lenny Burnham on Patreon to get episodes of this podcast early. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Do you want to learn falsehoods? Do you want to learn the not truths? Do you want to go to hell? Join Eric McAdams, Alea Plotney, and Liam Sr. as they go to hell. We Are Experts <laughs> is a podcast on the Major Cast Network. Each episode, we take a topic we know nothing about and speculate wildly till our hearts content. And then they sort of learn a little bit about the real topic at the end. But not too much. Just a little. Tune into We Are Experts. 
wherever you get podcasts, whenever we feel like posting it. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major. <laughs>